Look at you out there. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you this evening. Uh, I was hoping to have my wife, Sarah, and several children with us, but um, as you maybe already know this, because all your interns got sick when they came to our church just a few weeks ago, uh, apparently there's just lots of bugs in Providence, Rhode Island. But, um, uh, so they couldn't join us, but I've got Jason, one of our, uh, our pastoral assistant with us, so you should meet him if you haven't already met him. It's really good. I, I've, I found my, uh, I don't know what I expected tonight. I guess I just came and expected to speak, but it, it's really nice when you come to speak and you find your own heart being strangely warmed. I mean, I was just really warmed by uh, your voices. And um, so thank you, for, thank you for encouraging me this evening. We'll be in the book of Jonah, as he already uh, mentioned. So I'd encourage you to open that. I'll be referring to Jonah, uh, the chapter and verse, several times. And so this will be a lot m- more sensible to you if you are following along with me. Um, I'm not much for titles, but I entitled this The Uncomfortable Mercy of God. Who's Jonah? We'll start with a couple kind of introductory notes because you're we're, we're dipping into a new book each week here. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25 tells us that Jonah lived and prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. I threw in there two kings for you Brits who have been uh, struggling with all the second kings this in 1 Corinthians this summer. I pastored in England before that, so I kind of already shifted. Unlike Hosea and Amos, who supported Jeroboam's expansion, Jonah did not. And so many people think that Jonah is known as a kind of a patriotic kind of guy. And if you read through the book of Jonah, that makes sense. Anyways, the, the nice thing about this story, this prophet, Jonah, is that it breaks down very easily into four chapters and four scenes. And so it follows a, a very kind of easy, um, e- easy walkthrough. Chapter one, we see the disobedience of Jonah and God's mercy reaching out to pagan sailors. In chapter two, we see the prayer of Jonah and God's mercy reaching down into the pit and rescuing Jonah, the prophet. In chapter three, we see the obedience of Jonah and God's mercy extending to Ninevites. And then in chapter four, there's another prayer of Jonah and we see this conversation between Jonah and God that reveals both of their hearts. Unlike almost every other prophet that you're gonna cover this summer, this is really not a prophecy, it's a prophet. It's the story of a prophet. And so it's gonna feel a little bit different. In fact, I, yesterday as I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do tonight, I go, oh man, this is, this is a lot more to cover than I thought because it's a story. But I think there's a pretty clear main point. And I think it's this, God extends radical mercy to radical sinners. And I don't say that word radical in the sense that, like really, you know, like you're really a sinner, but radical in the sense that his mercy is deeply uncomfortable to us. And we're going to get into what that means later in the talk. And if you don't see the depths of your sin, if you don't embrace the radical mercy of God, then like Jonah, the, 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 the man who is supposed to be speaking for God, you will find yourself opposed to God. Scene one, point one, God's mercy reaches to pagan sailors. Chapter one. 
Our story begins with God's word coming to Jonah. Look at verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come upon come up before me. Just a quick note for you guys. You're going to notice about a quarter of the way through the sermon that I'll stop using the NIV and start using the ESV. And that's because I usually preach out of the NIV. And I started preparing yesterday with the NIV. And then this morning I thought, they probably use the ESV. I should use that. And instead of fixing all the quotations, I just went with it. So here you go. A quarter in the NIV, a third, another you know, three quarters in the ESV. I hope you can follow along. Presumably, as a prophet, Jonah would have received other words from God. And undoubtedly, those words, this message would have surprised Jonah because prophets were never sent, hardly ever sent, out of Israel. Prophets in Israel usually prophesied to Israelites. Maybe they prophesied woe about other nations, but rarely did they ever go outside of the city walls and into other nations. What would not have surprised Jonah was the wickedness of Ninevites rising up to God's. You see, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was famous, or maybe I should say infamous, throughout the ancient Near East for their jaw-dropping brutality and cruelty. You know, we all know how the story unfolds, don't we? We know that Jonah runs from this mission, and I think most of us are probably quick to criticize Jonah for that. We might be tempted to think, come on, Jonah, what's your problem? You don't want your neighbor to be saved? I mean, what's the deal? How hard-hearted do you have to be? What we easily overlook is that Assyria's brutality would have been known and witnessed, and depending on the date of Jonah, their cruelty may have been even experienced already by the northern kingdom of Israel where he lived. Now, let me give you a glimpse into what Jonah's experience with Nineveh was. This is how Assyria would treat their captors. Quote, the Assyrians would typically cut off the legs of their captors and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. After they pillaged and raped their way through your city... Quote, the Assyrians for, force friends and family members to parade through the city with decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they were flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. Quote, they burned adolescent children alive before their family. Assyria was nothing short of a ancient terrorist state. Now, can you imagine God coming to you and telling you to preach a message of judgment and perhaps mercy to the very people who did that to your countrymen and to your friends and perhaps to your own family. Verse 3, Jonah runs away from the Lord and he heads to Tarshish. Assyria is due east, Tarshish is due far west. And so he hops in the boat in rebellion to the Lord's word and God in response sends a violent storm. We don't have time to dwell on this tonight, but sometime you should look at the, the relationship between this storm and what happens and then the storm on Galilee with Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're almost exact replicas. 
As the storm swells and begins to rage, these sailors, who are likely from Tarshish, these are pagan men, they probably never heard of the the God of Israel. They begin doing everything in their power to stay alive. Verse 5, they cry out to their pagan gods for help. It doesn't work. So they begin throwing precious cargo overboard. Pretty costly decisions for merchants. Doesn't work. Finally, they go below deck to this mysterious man in the hole, and he's sound asleep. And verse 6, the captain says to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call upon your own God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And so the captain ends up interrogating him. Hey, where do you come from? Who are your people? What God do you serve? And Jonah, somewhat reluctantly, remember he was not aiming to go and preach to pagans, ends up kind of being forced into preaching at this boat. And so he reveals God to them. Verse 9, look with me. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord. It's, not the, it's, it's the covenant name for God. It's not the name that you would typically use if you were speaking to pagans. This Yahweh is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, meaning he's not, my God is not some kind of local deity like yours that kind of owns a sliver of the creation. That he, he's ruler over all. He's ruler over the seas and the winds, and therefore, he is responsible for this storm right now. And the pagan sailors, I'm sure they have never heard such a thing. (laughs) And they're terrified. And they rightly ask him, what are you doing running from such a God? They're more sensible to God than he is. And since Jonah is a prophet of this God, they say, hey, well, what you tell, he's your God. What should we do? And Jonah says, well, you listen, the, the, the reason for this storm is because I'm in my presence is the direct result of this storm. I'm in rebellion against God. And so you need to throw me overboard. And they just think he's nuts. Uh, All right, mate, just, just take it easy. We're not throwing you overboard. We're going to try to row back to shore. Doesn't work. And they realize they're all going to die. And so they go back to Jonah Actually, they go back first and they they cry on Jonah's Lord for mercy and then they throw Jonah overboard and immediately the raging sea grows calm. And these pagan sailors, can you imagine? They see God's sovereign power undisplayed and they are filled with fear, worshipful fear. Verse 16, "At at this the men greatly feared the Lord, Jonah's Lord. And they didn't stop there. They didn't simply acknowledge him. They worshiped the Lord by making a sacrifice to him and made vows, that's covenant vows, covenant commitments to him. Mercy reaches these pagan sailors when they see God's power on display. You know, God, this whole thing started because God wanted to show mercy on the Ninevites. And Jonah's not going to have any of it, so he disobeys. And God uses even his disobedience to save pagan sailors. It's as if God, God is going to save some sailors. He's going to save some pagans, one way or the other, whether Jonah obeys or whether he disobeys. And I want you to see how foolish it is to think like Jonah that we can actually oppose God's will. I think, I think Jonah thinks God can't do what he wants to do if I go the other direction. 
One time my daughter told me, this was last year, she's seven now, she was six, and after a birthday party, she told me, Daddy, I'm not going home with you. I'm going to stay the night. And um, I said, oh, how, how preciously rebellious and naive you are to think that you have any choice in this matter. And I said, Jane, sweetheart, I love you. You can oppose this decision, but there's only one way this night is ending, and it's with you in the car on the way back to our house, right? You can do it kicking and screaming. We can do this a number of ways, but my will will be done, right? How much more is that true of the God of the universe? God will accomplish his will. And friends, our lives will be far more enjoyable if we just align with his will than try to oppose it. God is supremely knowledgeable and good and right and powerful. And so friends, opposing God's revealed will that we find in scripture is as foolish, is far more foolish than six-year-old Jane trying to oppose her dad's will. But is it not comforting also to know that God can and will complete his good purposes despite our sinfulness? I mean, obviously, not, God is not saying, it doesn't matter what you do. He's not saying, that. of course it matters what you do. But God is not in any way dependent upon us. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. You know, one application here, parents. I'm a parent. God wants you to be godly and loving and sacrificial parents. But his grace in the lives of your children is not proportional to your own godliness. If God saves and sanctifies your children, that is an act of grace despite your sinfulness. Helpful reminder. Scene two, God, his mercy reaches the prophet Jonah. It's chapter two. Actually, it starts in verse 17 of chapter one. You can probably see that. God isn't only merciful to pagan sailors, he's merciful to rebellious prophets. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't want to talk long about whether this seems crazy to you, um, but here's, here's what I'll say. Um, it, it does seem crazy to me. I've never seen, I, I can't imagine, I can't, draw any kind of diagram on how this would work. What I can say is this. If God is so powerful that he can create the world and that he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can do this. So there, there's my deeply scientific, <laughs> deeply theological answer. God's merciful salvation has only begun. Because on the surface, when, when you get swallowed by a fish, I don't think you think first thing, ah, salvation. <laughs> um, it feels more like judgment, I imagine. So three days and three nights in the bellow of a sea creature's bowels and Jonah begins to come to his senses finally. You know, it's not until Jonah hits rock bottom that he comes to his senses. There he cries out to the Lord for salvation. He confesses his sin. He places his trust in God's certain salvation. Notice Jonah acknowledges this was the Lord's righteous judgment. Verse three, you, you cast me, you cast me into the deep. 
into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, they passed over me. If you are going to experience God's mercy, you must first acknowledge God's righteous judgment over you. There is no mercy without acknowledgement of your sin and God's right, his authority to judge your sin. Jonah also believes that God will rescue him. Verse four, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look on your holy temple, meaning this watery grave will not be the last thing I see. This is not the end of my story. You know, maybe Jonah's trusting that God's gonna rescue him in the moment. Maybe he has some sense of trust that God, he, he might die, but God is going to resurrect him in, a, in a, some kind of final resurrection. Either way, Jonah not only acknowledges God's judgment, but he's confident in the salvation. Look at verse nine. I will sacrifice to the Lord because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that his God is a God of mercy. He he can bank on it in the belly of a fish. And And so he's driven to plead for that mercy confident of God's salvation. But how does, how does God bring Jonah to this moment? How does he get to soften Jonah's hard heart so that he does cry out to mercy? Verse two, Jonah prays, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that's, that's the realm of the dead. It says that the Lord has brought him into hell itself. Here you heard my voice. Verse five, weeds are wrapped around my head like a turban of seaweed, choking him and blinding his eyes. I've sunk down to the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars like a prison closed around me forever. Jonah's saying, you had to show me that my sin is like a bottomless prison, a dark and hellish place. That is where rebellion to God leads. I had to see that. Brothers and sisters, I know these, a turban of seaweed is not an image that is natural for us. But God is provoking our imagination here so that we will shudder at the idea of being content in our sin. Your sin against God will smother you It will darken you, it will imprison you, it will eternally kill you. But it's also here, in the pit, that God extends mercy. If God doesn't bring Jonah to the pit, then Jonah will never look up for mercy, right? If he lets him sail to Tarshish, he's not looking up to cry for mercy, is he? So verse 10, the Lord spoke and the fish vomited him upon Jonah unto the dry land. There's salvation in one verse. God is giving mercy to Jonah. He's merciful to Jonah in bringing him to the depths. So we just said. He's merciful in not letting him go to Tarshish. He's merciful in raising him up and spitting him out and saving him. You know, Charles 
Charles Spurgeon, great English preacher, a man who knew deep trials and afflictions, famously said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Meaning God brings trials, and sometimes those trials are divine discipline. So that we will see the devastating reality of our own sin, and so that we will have hope in Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't resent God. Don't resent God if he brings you in what, into what feels like a watery grave. If you are there now or in the future, ask God to show you his mercy. I can give you so many stories. I bet I could give you more stories like this of men and women coming to the Lord, discovering the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ after they have lost all their money, after they have lost their dream job, after they've gone to prison for drug dealing, after they have their marriage fall to pieces. I know very few, actually no stories, where someone comes to faith right after getting the greatest promotion of their life or coming into a ton of money meaning it's more like God to bring you to the end of yourself so that you will grasp for mercy than for God to give you all the riches and all the things you probably want in order to show you his mercy. Know the ways of God. Learn his ways. Kiss the waves that throw you against the rock of Christ. Scene three. Point three. God's mercy reaches Nineveh. Chapter three, what you'll notice is this book is kind of split in half. Chapter one and two is kind of repeated in chapter three and four. Chapter three is like a redo of chapter one. So the word comes to Jonah. Go preach to the great city of Nineveh. Like chapter one, we have Jonah's response. This time he obeys. Just like Jonah in chapter one, he reveals, in chapter one, he revealed the, the, the name of the Lord. He preached essentially to the pagan sailors. Now he preaches about God's judgment to the Ninevites. We read here that Nineveh is a large and impressive city. It took three days to walk through the city. It only took one day, however, for the wicked, violent, cruel-hearted Ninevites to believe in God. Now, you have to believe that this hearing and this believing was a sovereign act of God himself. You've got to remember who Jonah is. He's an Israelite prophet. And you've got to remember who Nineveh, Nineveh, the Ninevites are. They're a bloodthirsty terrorist state. Tim Keller remarks, how long do you think a Jewish rabbi would have lasted standing on the streets of Berlin in 1941 preaching to the Nazis, repent? Not very long. Unless God worked in their hearts. <laughs> These Ninevites don't believe in God because all of the sudden they became good neighbors and spiritually sensitive. No, they believe in Jonah's message because God has intervened in their hearts. And he's intervened even in their king's heart. Read chapter three, verse six with me. In following, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, 
removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Even the cows have to wear sackcloth and ashes. Talk about repentance. What a picture of repentance this is. The king of an ancient superpower empire steps off his throne, takes off his royal robes, covers himself in the clothes of a beggar, and lays prostrate before the God of heaven. He doesn't presume upon God's mercy. He hopes for God's mercy. Friends, that's a picture of true repentance. Stepping off your own throne, taking off the garb that you you think makes you so important, coming to God as a beggar pleading for mercy. That's repentance. Notice this is not abstract repentance. It's concrete. The king and the nation that is so infamous for their violent rage and cruelty, commits to giving up their evil ways of violence. In verse 10, after Nineveh repents of their sin, God relents his judgment. So God extends mercy even to the nation, even to the rulers who have committed some of the greatest evil and violence known in the ancient world. I was thinking about it as I read through Jonah 10 times in the last few days. Could there be in all of the Bible a clearer picture that God grants Salvation and mercy, not on the basis of virtue, or but but anything, but but on the basis of humble repentance and faith. I mean, if salvation were ever to be granted on the basis of a moral superiority, or on the basis of good deeds, or on the basis of our own virtue, then the Ninevites of all people would be the last people to ever receive mercy. What we learn about God in the book of Jonah is that his mercy is deeply scandalous. What do I mean by that? So in our own day, people are often scandalized by not the mercy of God, but by the justice of God, right? You'll hear people say things like, how could I ever believe in a God who would send someone to an eternal hell? How could I love a God that punishes people so absolutely and thoroughly? Why does my little sin here and that little sin there deserve God's judgment? It seems a bit arbitrary, a bit pedantic. Of course, it's neither of those things. But here I want you to see that God is highlighting the scandalous nature of his far-reaching mercy. His mercy is uncomfortable. Yeah, we might sing about mercy, But usually, we actually have our mental limits on mercy, don't we? No one wants to talk about 
mercy to a child abuser or a Nazi. We're okay with what I call middle-class, polite society mercy. Mercy for people with normal, middle-class sins like me. But the idea that God would extend mercy to the very people who carved people up for sport, that he would extend mercy to those who burn children alive in front of their families, I mean, it just makes you want to vomit. It's revolting. It is revolting. And that's exactly where we find Jonah in chapter four. Chapter four, Jonah's heart and the Lord's heart. Jonah's mercy resistant heart and the Lord's heart of compassion. Verse one, this mercy, uncomfortable mercy, displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. God's mercy makes Jonah sick to his stomach. It's too radical. God, where's your justice? Where's your wrath? How could you? Look at verse two. This is the second time now Jonah has prayed. It's not a prayer of repentance, notice. It's a prayer of accusation. O Lord, is not, it, o Lord, is not this what I said to you when I was still in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew, I knew that you're a gracious God. I knew you're so merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's saying, Lord, I just cannot, I could not bear the thought of you being merciful to these people. The thought that you would show kindness and mercy to the deepest and greatest enemies we could ever have. People that have committed such atrocities. People that have blasphemed your name, Lord. Don't you care about your name? He's saying, your mercy makes me sick. In fact, Jonah says, I'd rather die than see you give mercy to them. What's happening in Jonah's heart? First, you can, have some, you can have some sympathy with Jonah, can't you? His understanding of justice and mercy is just being pushed to the limits. Never has God seemed to give this kind of radical mercy away. Of course, what Jonah can't fully see that we do see is that this kind of mercy can only exist Because one day, God is going to pour out his absolute raging wrath against his son for all the sin of these Ninevites who are being forgiven. He will uphold his justice in a way that Jonah probably cannot even imagine so that he can give uncomfortable Mercy, mercy that makes us a little sick. Second, Jonah has inflated, has an inflated view of himself and his own nation, doesn't he? 
What Jonah doesn't realize is that his own sin and the sin of his own nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, also burns hot in the nostrils of God. He might not say this directly, but there's an assumption here that his sin and his nation's own rebellion towards God is is kind of a different category. That's more palatable to God. Yeah, he needs mercy, but it's more tame mercy. Understandable mercy. Not this radical mercy that extended to the the Ninevites. Their sin in his mind just puts them so far out of reach of any kind of sensible God's mercy. You know, I I wonder if we have often domesticated God's own mercy. Yeah, we write... You're a well-taught church. You know all the right biblical and theological answers. But I wonder if practically speaking, we assume that God forgives us. When God forgives us, he's done something very sensible, very normal. Oh, of course. But you know, there's others that it's almost gross if he forgives them. Jonah hates that God's mercy would extend this far. And so in verse five, he sees what's happening in the city, the repentance, the sackcloth. He doesn't continue preaching. He goes up on the east side, sits on a hill. He watches, and I think he's watching, hoping and waiting that God will relent of his relenting and maybe, after all, nuke these people in 40 days. Front row seats. So what does God do? He sends a little bit of grace. It's scorching hot. It's in the middle of the desert in the Middle East. And God appoints, notice the the words for God's sovereignty, he appoints a plant to grow and give him shade. And this plant makes Jonah very happy. Ah, a little respite, a little refreshment from the soul-crushing heat. God's not done with Jonah. This plant... Jonah doesn't know this, but this plant is just an object lesson for Jonah. Because the very next day, God's going to appoint a worm to eat the plant. It's going to wither, and he's going to be in the soul-crushing heat once again. And Jonah is angry with God and pleads, just kill me. Get it over with. He's having a pity party for himself. It's actually quite pathetic if you read it all to yourself. But I want to draw your eyes as we close here to this final conversation that God has with Jonah at the end of the book because it presses so deeply into the difference between Jonah's mercy-resistant heart and God's mercy-extending, compassionate heart. Look at how gentle God is with Jonah in verse 9. Jonah is it right for you to be angry about the... I feel like I'm talking to my daughter here. Jane, is it right to be so upset that you don't have your brother's toy? You know, I, is it right for you to be so angry about this plant? And Jonah's just so pathetic. Yes, it is. I'm, I'm so angry, I'm going to die. I, I literally imagined my seven-year-old there when, when I read that. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you, Jonah, you pity, that, that's the word for compassion, you have compassion 
on the plant for which you did not labor. You did not make it grow. It came up in one night. It was gone the next night. So you had it for one day. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? The Lord is saying, Jonah, your heart is the problem. You can have compassion on a plant that, you, that served you for one day. You didn't tend it. You didn't create it. You had no relation to it. But, but you don't want me to have compassion on my creation, on the very persons created in my image who are lost and confused. Jesus would say in very similar fashion, like sheep without a shepherd. God is saying, Jonah, it's not me that has the heart problem, it's you. Jonah believes at the end of the day that grace and mercy are really at the end of the day deserved, doesn't he? He might not say it that way. I imagine he got his prophecy diploma, but that's what his actions demonstrate. Here is the message of Jonah. God's compassionate heart fuels him. It motivates him to extend radical, uncomfortable mercy to radical sinners. And if we oppose God's mercy, then we are actually opposing God like a prophet who is to be a mouthpiece of God, opposing the God he serves. Friends, isn't, and when Jesus comes on the scene, isn't this the story of the Pharisees? We're going through Matthew right now, and I just thought, this is the Pharisees. To them, it's obscene that Jesus would ever invite tax collectors. Those are Roman collaborators. Collaborators. That, that, that Jesus would invite harlots and known sinners into the kingdom of God. People that had spent their whole lives ignoring God's word. And they, the Pharisees, who, who read God's word, they, they, they thought they had it down. You invite them and not us. They hated the mercy of Christ. And so they hated Christ. Brothers and sisters, you live in New York City. Is this New York City? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's no Nineveh. It's no New Jerusalem either. It will be very easy for us who believe in the authority of the word of God like Jonah did. It'll be very easy to, for us to allow our hearts to shrivel in compassion for a decadent society that we live in. Nothing feels more decadent than what we've, many of you have experienced in the last couple weeks, right? Maybe it's more like Nineveh than I thought. But this book of Jonah gives us hope that God can make the most godless society that I think we can record in ancient history, the most godless society known to man, God can make see and repent, and live, and receive mercy. He can do that. 
He can do it in your workplace. He can do it in your school. He can do it in your neighborhood. So what does that mean? You can preach boldly, right? And you can cultivate in your heart compassion to see such people receive the far-reaching mercy of Christ. People that you never would think would come to Christ. Maybe people that you are so disgusted by, you think they shouldn't come to Christ. God will reach those people. Why? If he reached you, he can reach them. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for rebellious prophets that we get to learn from. And we thank you for your far-reaching somewhat uncomfortable mercy and it's that kind of mercy that allows us to draw near to you in faith as children. One through the blood of Christ secured in the resurrection of Christ. Amen.